0: Weeds are jerks, um, they will respond to any strategy that you use over and over and over again and that's exactly what they've done. I mean even if you if you step back to when we were relying more on tillage to manage weeds, weeds shifted when they emerged in, in the growing season to avoid those early tillage passes.
1: Hello folks and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. As always, our goal with this podcast is simple to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we talked to Dr. Brianne Teidman of AAFC Lacombe. We talked to her about managing herbicide resistance, what the current status of herbicide resistance is in Western Canada, and what producers can do to manage herbicide resistance, what what practices they can implement to mitigate bringing herbicide or developing herbicide resistance on their farm. Uh, Brianne, as always, is is a great source of information on this. Um, So I hope you find great value in, in this conversation. And as always, thank you for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. Enjoy the episode. Okay, well, we are here with Dr. Brianne Tideman of AAFC Lacombe. Welcome, Brienne. thanks for taking the time to chat today.
0: hey Jeremy, thanks for having me
1: it's uh I, I mean it I love chatting with you It's always exciting talking about herbicides and weeds and herbicide resistance it It's probably one of you know one of the most talked about topics that we're dealing with in western Canada and, and really globally weeds have become more of an issue um, so could you maybe give us Um, Actually, you know what, before we get into it, why don't you give us a breakdown of of your role and what you do at AAFC Lacombe, uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, Brienne.
0: Sure. So as you said, I'm based with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, um, and I am the weed scientist there. So my official title is Weed Science and Field Agronomy, uh, but my focus is really in weed science. And so my program focuses on Uh, looking at integrated weed management strategies particularly with a focus on non-herbicide methods of managing weeds because of resistance. Um, I also do a little bit of weed biology and ecology uh, and in the last few years especially my program has had a significant focus on harvest weed seed control and um, things like the Harrington seed destructor or the seed terminators and and those types of things.
1: So really, just looking at you know how else can we manage some of these problem weeds that are coming up?
0: Yeah, exactly. What what other options do we have? We know the herbicides work when they work, uh, but when they don't work, what the heck do we do? Is is kind of where my program is is focused. Sounds like an important role, Brian. I I like to think so. (laughs) I I don't know that everyone would agree, but I like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I I don't know that everyone would agree, but I like. Well, I would tend to agree. Um, oh, thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so what? Where where are we at with resistance and, and herbicide resistance in Western Canada, and maybe uh, you know what? This is an Alberta focused uh, podcast. Um, so, you know, Western Canada, and then and then Alberta.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, across Canada, as elsewhere in the world, we are continually seeing increases in terms of herbicide resistance cases. So, either uh, new weed species with resistance to herbicides, or weed species that are resistant to different herbicides or just an increased prevalence of them across the landscape. Um, So in Western Canada, well, actually Canada as a whole, I should say ranks third globally in terms of herbicide resistance behind the US and Australia. Um, So a little higher than I think any of us would really prefer to be. Um, In Western Canada, in the prairies, the last resistance survey, I wanna say it was something like 69% of fields have a herbicide-resistant weed in them at this point in time, so it's it's an awfully high number um, in Alberta. For sure, we are still seeing those increases. I mean, we've got surveys going from the early two thousands all the way up to the most recent one in twenty seventeen, um, and the next one will be next year, I believe. It is in Alberta, um, and we're just we're seeing steady increases across uh, the number of herbicide-resistant weeds we're finding the amount of land that they cover in Alberta, it's just, it's continuing to increase. So, you know,
1: is this is this causing additional costs to producers or um, are these just kind of a, a nuance that, you know, we're not having to spend any extra money on at this
0: point? Unfortunately, there is absolutely extra costs involved um, in Alberta, so with, with the herbicide resistance survey, uh a an actual like paper type survey goes out to the farmers whose fields are being scouted uh, and one of the questions that they are asked is their perceived cost of herbicide resistant weeds on their farms so that takes into account not only how much more are you spending on other herbicides or other weed management practices to try and manage these resistant weed populations but also how much is are those weeds costing you if you're not controlling them in terms of your yield loss or quality loss or things like that. So it's kind of accounting for both sides of those types of costs. Um, and the estimate from the 2017 survey was $17 an acre in Alberta. So it's, it's not a trivial cost. And that's, that's the perceived cost, depending how bad something like, you know, your herbicide resistant wild oats are or something like that, that can go up very, very quickly just in terms of different herbicides that you're applying, trying to manage that population. And if you don't manage all of them, whatever's left is competing with your crop and, and stealing your yield. So there are definitely costs associated with resistance.
1: Yeah, in a in an industry and in, in, in a, a a production system where um, you know margins can be pretty darn tight, seventy dollars an acre is is certainly not a trivial 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 amount. Um,
0: Agreed. Yeah, yeah.
1: When we look at herbicides and we try to assess their resistance um, we can spray a weed and point at it and say that one did not die, this group, this patch did not die, uh, that's, I, these are resistant. Maybe you've seen that a couple years. Is, there, is, it, is it either there's resistance and non-resistance? Is it an on and off switch? Um, we do run tests to test resistance. Does it essentially say yes or no, or, or how How do we know and what does it look like biologically we run these tests? What does resistance look like? How could we describe it?
0: So there, there's sort of two answers that I want to cover here. When we do the herbicide resistance surveys, it is for the sake of the survey and because it would otherwise get so complicated that we would never have any information to give anybody, it is a bit of an on or off switch if there's resistance in that field or not. So... If there's a resistant weed in that field, yes, there's resistance in that field. That field is, is recorded as having resistance type of thing, regardless of if it's low resistance, high resistance, one single plant or the entire population that was tested. If there's a resistant weed, that field is hit as resistant. Now, in terms of how a producer's actually dealing with weeds in their field, you're not going to go from one year you sprayed and all your wild oats died to the next year you sprayed and every single wild oat in your field lived. Um, that's That's not how resistance really evolves. So what we see in terms of evolution of resistance is when you spray a population, you select for the one or two maybe unique individuals that have this naturally occurring mutation somewhere inside of them at the cell level that allows them to survive that herbicide. Those one or two plants will set seed and become a slightly bigger part of the population the next year. So typically what you're going to see is you're going to see patches of weeds. You're going to, going to see a small patch of wild oats or a small patch of uh, cleavers that are not being controlled. Now, how big that patch is when you notice it is a test of how well you're scouting and how close of attention you pay to your weeds in your field, really. Um, Sometimes you can catch it when the patch is pretty small and you can deal with it in patch form. Sometimes you don't notice until it's a fairly good sized patch and you're like, "Hey, why are there so many of this weed in this field type of thing? Um, but it does typically start as, as a bit of a focal point. Now, some weeds, um, and I'm thinking of kochia here, uh, may, not, may not show that typical patch distribution because of how their seeds are dispersed. So if you have one resistant kochia individual, that then in the fall breaks off and does the tumbleweed thing that they're known for, you might have a path of kochia that has resistance. And I'm sure some of you have seen the the pictures of, you know, the stubble with all the green kochia, and you can tell exactly where the kochia rolled. That's because of how those seeds are dispersed. Something like wild oat, where those seeds fall right by the mother plant, you're going to end up with just sort of a patch type of formation. So it depends a little bit on the weed species as well, but it's not going to be you know, 100% control to 0% control the next year. And and our resistance testing reflects that. So typically when you send your seeds in for resistance testing, you'll get back a percentage of the seeds tested that were resistant. So you might have no resistance, low resistance, you know, developing resistance, high resistance, something like that. And in terms of what that means in your field, you kind of have to understand where you took those seeds from did you take them from the only surviving patch in your field? Well, now you know that patch is maybe highly resistant, but maybe the rest of your wild oats in your field are still susceptible. If you took seeds from across your entire field, okay, maybe you've got resistance developing in a few different patches across your field, that type of thing. So with resistance testing, in terms of what those numbers actually mean, you kind of have to know where those seeds came from and how you collected them and, and and really think about what those numbers are telling you.
1: That makes sense on a macro scale when we're thinking about a population of, of resistant yeah. developing resistant plants. Um, you know, I'm 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 curious about the macro scale. If you take one of those seeds, and you, you let's say we can run it through a, a resistance test that um, gives us gives us an idea, is it is that in that scenario an on or off? or can that individual plant have varying levels of resistance that you know progress and get worse? Um, or again, is that an on and off switch?
0: So it depends a little bit on the type of resistance. So if you have resistance that comes from a mutation in the actual site of action of the herbicide, so there's an actual amino acid change in the enzyme that your herbicide is targeting as an example. So this is really common with group one and group two herbicides. You have an amino acid change, which means the herbicide can't bind to that enzyme anymore, that's on and off. It either is resistant or it's not because the herbicide either can bind or it can't. If you have something like metabolic resistance, as an example, where you're seeing um, more degrading enzymes produced by the plant to actually break down that herbicide, that can be a little bit more of a gradient uh, because increased selection continu- can continually select for more of those breakdown enzymes, essentially. So it's, it's, it's you can have a little bit of both, um, but you're typically going to see, like with, with a lot of our group ones and twos, that's our, our primary modes of resistance here, it's typically on or off. Every once in a while you can see progressive resistance essentially
1: it, it sounds like there might be a relationship between the type of of weed we're working with and then the type of of um product we're using the active wherever that target site is there's a relationship
0: there yeah exactly so the the way the herbicides interact within the plants and how those plants become resistant have a bit of an interaction with with how we'll see resistance in terms of that one single seed yes or no type question
1: i'm going to go out on a limb here ryan and say that this is a really good reason why rotation of active ingredients is important.
0: Rotation and even better use of multiple effective modes of action. So there's been a lot of models run. There's been a lot of work done on on how to use herbicides most effectively to try and mitigate herbicide resistance. And so we know if we use the same herbicide or the same mode of action over and over and over and over again, that's our fastest way to select for resistance. We know that if you rotate your modes of action you will delay resistance a little bit if you tank mix with two effective modes of action or more you're actually going to have the most significant delay in terms of resistance evolution and so the the reason is that if you're if you're only rotating so say you use a group one on your wild oats this year and a group two next year something like that you've still done the selection and had that individual survive and produce offspring, and now he's in the seed bank for the next time you come back to your group ones. Whereas if you have two effective modes of action at the same time, even though it's resistant to say your group ones, maybe it's not resistant to your group eight, and so the group eight controls the group one resistant individual, and the group one controls the group eight resistant individual, and now neither of those individuals are putting seeds into your seed bank to be next year's problem, if that makes any kind of sense. So
1: I I can't I can't I can't help think, um, you know, we're we have this this acronym for how to make sure we're tank mixing properly. Whales use that order to make this decision on how to properly tank mix. Why hasn't someone come up with an acronym that we can remember on how to select the proper herbicides to mitigate resistance? You know, somebody needs to think of an acronym that we can slap down and be like, make sure you follow these steps. It's going to help you mitigate Resistance.
0: Because it's just not that easy. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> Darn, I thought I had something there, Brian.
0: I, I know. I wish. Um, the, the problem is, I mean, for, for one single weed in the field. So if you're trying to include control cleavers in your field, you need to have, in theory, to do this properly, two multiple effective modes of action on your cleavers. But you also have hemp nettle in the field. And you need two effective modes of action on the hemp nettle as well, as well as on the volunteer canola, as well as on the wild oats, as well as on the chickweed. And so can you find two products that are actually both active on all of those single weeds at the same time? Now throw resistance in. Those two products would be both active on cleavers, but you've got group two resistant and now that product doesn't work anymore. Then you throw rate structures in. This product is only effective on hemp nettle if you use the high rate. And it just it just gets complicated. So we we are working I've got a project that was uh, funded recently through the egg funding consortium to work on trying to build decision support systems to help farmers identify multiple effective modes of action tank mixes in their fields. So it, it is something we're working on. But I don't think it's going to be as simple as an acronym.
1: Yeah, it's it- Sounds like a bit. <laughs> I tried, Brian. And I, I, you know, I didn't see that proposal. I'm excited for it. Um, you know, anything that, that we can do to you know make these decisions a little bit easier. There's enough decisions that need to be made on farming um, that, that if we can simplify some of these things to make it easier, uh, I think I think we'd be in a better a better position. Uh, you know, this kind of leads into my next question. Um and What have we done to kind of get us to this point? You mentioned that Canada is third globally, which, when you think about it, it sinks in a little heavy. Um, is there something that we are doing, practice-wise, or we did practice-wise that led us to this? It, you know, is it kind of a a, a a relationship between the environment and the weeds we have and the practices we do? Like, what what, what has caused this? step for us to be third and and what management practices maybe we should be thinking about not utilizing.
0: So the, as complicated as herbicide resistance is, how we get it really boils down to one really simple thing. We over relied on herbicides. And if you think about generally our response to weeds in the field is spray them right? That's that is how we manage weeds in the field. And because we rely on that one single tool over and over and over again, we've put huge amounts of selection pressure on these chemical strategies, and the weeds have responded. The weeds are jerks. Um, they will respond to any strategy that you use over and over and over again. And that's exactly what they've done. I mean, even if you if you step back to when we were relying more on tillage, To manage weeds. Weeds shifted when they emerged in in the growing season to avoid those early tillage passes. Weeds are are jerks and if you continually give them a selection pressure they will respond to it and that's exactly what they've done. So in terms of how do we how do we manage that, again giving a very simplistic answer is quit relying on herbicides so much. Now that's a whole lot easier said than done but that is the overall goal is really reduce the reliance on those herbicide products how do you do that you make the crop more competitive you make sure you're fertilizing the crop not the weeds you increase your seeding rate you diversify your rotation like I said weeds like the same thing over and over and over and over again so if all you're growing is spring annual spring annual spring annual spring annual weeds are very well adapted to grow in the spring annual system all of a sudden if you throw a winter cereal in that can throw them off their game if you're throwing in a forage crop or a silage crop where you're cutting the weeds before they're setting seeds, that messes with the weeds in terms of the environment that they're growing in. So adding diversity to those management strategies is huge. And there's, we get pushback or I get pushback, I should say, when I'm, when I'm talking about some of these strategies because increasing seeding rate, have you seen the cost of X, Y, or Z crop for the seed? or the seed treatment products in some cases. And it's like, yeah, I I understand that. But I mean, we talked about it's not the entire field in one year that suddenly every single thing in your field is resistant, it's patches. So maybe you increase your seeding rate in the resistant patch to give the, the wild oats there more competition or something like that, instead of having to necessarily do your entire field. We do variable rate fertilizer all the time. Why can't we do variable rate seeding to help deal with those weeds
1: that is a that is a practice they implement in in australia is it not uh
0: certainly increased seeding rates i don't know if they're increasing in patches as much um i'd be surprised if they weren't considering everything else that they are doing for weeds um but it it really comes down to to adding diversity if your answer to weeds in your field is spray them you're going to have more issues end of story
1: I always think about these things, and usually I I think visually, and I can't help but think of this as, you know, the path of least resistance. The the weed is looking for the path of least resistance to put its progeny out, and when we use herbicides almost solely, we're essentially creating a, a, a path of least resistance that's around herbicide use. So it's going to look for areas around herbicide resistance or or around the herbicides we're implementing and when you say using you know complex systems to to um, defend that using multiple tactics you know we're kind of taking more tools and creating more resistance around those potential easy paths i don't know maybe that's how i'm picturing it in my head but i've also heard you describe it as the the multiple hammer Um, yeah that's exactly
0: where i was going next was the the many little hammers theory and this was this is a phrase coined in in the 90s that weed scientists absolutely love so i mean herbicides are basically our one giant hammer that we're dropping on the weed but you've only got one shot so if you miss that weed you didn't kill it right if if your drop of that hammer is a little bit off target you've missed the weed and the weed escapes where if you drop a whole bunch of little hammers that maybe aren't as effective alone as that big hammer but you're dropping a whole bunch of them you've got a much higher chance of hitting that weed even multiple times and actually having success and maintaining success because it doesn't take just that small shift in to escape that that control tactic or those control tactics I should say so it's kind of I have this picture of of uh, Wiley e. Coyote actually typically. Um, with a giant rock coming down towards him, or a giant hammer in this case, and he just steps to the side and goes, "Ha ha! I, I escaped. You didn't get me." And then the next is like this hailstorm of tons of little hammers, and he just gets beaten to a pulp in the dust. Because Wiley e. Coyote always ended up in a puddle on the on the dust, right? So, that's that's kind of how I picture it.
1: <laughs> I I certainly like that better than mine. We can stick with that one. So, I mean, we we talked about resistance. We've talked about the impact. What what got us here? What Can and there's plenty of producers who are dealing with resistance already Um, for those who maybe aren't at this point or worried about introduction or worried about development. What can producers and agronomists do to mitigate resistance development in their fields?
0: Diversity, diversity in as many and as many ways as you possibly can. So whether that's crop diversity, whether that's weed management diversity, whether that's herbicide diversity, just diversify everything <laughs> and think outside the box. So if you've got um, a patch that is continually bad for kochia or something like that, you know, maybe, maybe that area goes to grass or you've got an area that is perpetually weak in terms of the crop for who knows what reason. Maybe you seed that to a pollinator stamp and get a two-for-one, the weed doesn't continue to spread through your field and you get your pollinator benefits or or something like that. Um, A big one for me, obviously the last few years with working on harvest weed seed control, is don't spread the patch of weeds. If you've got a patch that you suspect is resistant, don't help those weeds get further across your field. So that's where the harvest weed seed control, the seed destructors, the terminators, whatever, that's that's what they're designed to do is to prevent those weeds from spreading across the field through your combine. Because your combine is a really, really good broadcast seeder for weeds. Whatever seeds are left on the weed plants in your crop when you go through, most of those are coming out in the chaff and we're purposely spreading our residue, which includes those weed seeds across the field. But if you're if you're not looking at investing in a harvest weed seed control strategy at this point because they're too expensive or you're not there yet or whatever, leave that patch. If it's solid wild oats, please don't combine through it. Go back and and swath it and bale it or mow it or something, but please don't spread it further because you're just making next year's problem that much worse.
1: That's a great tip. Yeah, I mean, you see those the the residue being broadcasted at the back or the the um straw being broadcast at the back, I just picturing all those weed seeds flying back out there as well.
0: I mean, you anyone who's been around a combine or even run to the combine to give somebody their supper has been pelted by chaff from the back of the combine. You've had the dust in your hair, you've had the grit in your teeth. It's guaranteed. Well, some of that grit may have been weed seed. And depending how far you were, it just pelted you and that's how far it's reaching across your field. Like Steve Shirtliff, when he did his study on wild oat and chaff collection in, in the early 2000s, I wanna say he found that a wild oat at the furthest measurement that he took, which was like 200 meters from, from the source patch. So it's, it's not necessarily a small dispersal in your field, it can be significant. And, and if you think about what you're doing, let's take this resistant seed from the patch that I'm having trouble to control and put it further in my field so that it becomes more of the, the population and, and a bigger problem in my field. It just, it's very counterintuitive. Why not keep it in a patch where you can target your management? So,
1: I, I mean, listening to this conversation, and kind of thinking back, <clears throat> you know, we, we want to be rotating our herbicides. We want okay. to be using multiple action sites from those herbicides, rotating our crops. So again, diversity, diversity, diversity. Um, obviously we, we want to avoid two applications of the herb, same herbicide in a row, um, that creates risk I'd imagine, uh, especially if we're not pairing it with something else. Um, is tillage something that, that producers are entertaining? Where are we sitting with that?
0: Oh, tillage. Let's jump into the controversial word, shall we? <laughs> um, tillage is, is interesting. Um. From a weed management perspective only, and before any of the soil conservationists come yelling at me, I'm I'm getting to the other part, but from a weed management perspective only, tillage can be really effective because it targets both the seeds that are in the seed bank as well as seedling plants or plants that are growing. Now, having said that, when you disturb the seed bank, you may actually stimulate more growth. So there's always a potential negative of of using tillage for for managing particularly seedlings that are up, but we know it can be... An effective strategy. Do we want everyone who's in no-till going back to tillage to manage their resistant weeds? Absolutely not. Um, the, the negatives and the cons of broad-scale tillage far outweigh the benefits for weed management. Having said that, if you have one patch of wild oats, would it hurt to till just that patch, do strategic tillage? I don't know. That work hasn't been done really so much. Um, there, there are machines out there that do inter-row tillage. So even, I mean, this is something a strategy that's been used in, in horticultural crops for a long time. But now there's actually um, vision guidance that allows us to go down to I think it's between six-inch rows. So certainly within the the 12-inch row spacing or 15-inch row spacing that a lot of producers have, um, and you can run a tillage machine while the plants are growing. So you're not going to have quite the same level of erosion. At least it that's my theory. Again, interrotilage has been tested in terms of weed management by Steve Shirtliff at the U of S by um, Martin Nance at the U of M. And they know it's effective on the weeds, there hasn't been as much work done on the soil impacts of using that interrotillage. I think it's something that a lot of producers are comfortable with because it's something they've seen used before they've used it before themselves before we really move to no-till and so i think there is a bit of a inclination to move back towards tillage if, if resistant weeds are in the field but i i think there's other strategies that could be incorporated as well i don't think that's the only one we need to
1: so when when I see these um, site specific tillage tools, these these vision guided tillage tools, I can't help but think they've things have come a long way since my time being a tillage machine. Uh, I grew up on a horticulture farm where uh, Saturdays were spent carrying a hoe um, around a twenty five acre plot of strawberries, cleaning up in between the plants. So um, I really wish I had that back in my day because. Uh, Yeah, that's that's not a fun job. So the other thing I'm getting from this conversation is that um, it in a in an arena or in an area of research that is very quickly moving, um, you know, we're gaining new information on weed management day by day um, and being up to date on that information is going to be important um, and knowing where that information is coming from and, and how you may be able to implement that to better manage herbicide resistance or mitigate it on your farm. Um, are there areas producers can go to to stay up to date on this information um, and to, to kind of gain that knowledge?
0: Yeah, so I mean, for at least for Wild Oats, um, we've recently formed in the last couple of years here, the Resistant Wild oat Action Committee. Um, and we're, we're active on Twitter. We've got uh, a site on the Canadian Weed Science Society webpage. And we're we're actively putting out infographics and trying to get out fact sheets and and trying to provide producers information on how to manage the wild oats, how to get testing done, where you get testing done, how do you sample for testing, um, those types of things. So the the wild oat action committee is definitely a good resource. Um, egg Egg Media is is a great resource. I mean the the agronomists with Real Egg they just had on. Uh, a weed science one on last Monday, this Monday, last Monday, recently uh, focused on weed control and weed management practices. Um, the weed scientists that are out there, I mean myself, I'm volunteering my colleague, sorry guys, uh, Sean Sharp, Charles Geddes in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan here, we, we're happy to talk weeds. We're weed nerds. We like weeds. We like talking weed management. So we're, we're usually pretty game to answer questions and we're not that hard to find if you Google us um and things like that i think there's lots of resources out there you know we we try and get out to field days we try and talk about the research that we're doing what's what we're seeing out there what other people are looking at um we we obviously can't do it all i i rely a lot on on what's happening in australia where they're looking at lasers and and things like that, because that's not something I've had the opportunity to move towards. And I don't know if anyone should trust me with a laser either in terms of doing research. If teenage Jeremy is any indication,
1: don't give him a laser.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it might be safer to just rely on my Australian colleagues for that one. But uh, I mean, there's a ton of work being done out there if, if you take the time to look for it. And most of us that are doing the work love talking about our work because we, we, Love it. It's it's our passion. So if someone asks us a question about a research project or a research area we're working on, we're we're usually harder to shut up than to get to talk about yeah. it.
1: <laughs> those weed folk. <laughs>
0: yeah. Weed so- nerds.
1: So seek seek and you shall find. There's it sounds like there's a decent amount of information out there. Um, you know I've I've seen a lot of the stuff from the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee, and, and from what I understand, uh, they're in the process of developing a lot more content. So certainly I would imagine something to watch.
0: You bet. And I know um, on the Kosha side of things as well, there is a. I'm trying to think of their formal name. The Kosha Act. I don't think it's the Action Committee. I can't remember their their official title. Um, but that's a, a U.S. and Canada initiative that's that's been started and they're they're actively working to develop certainly research projects i don't know how much on the outreach side of things for for management of herbicide resistant
1: okay well, well brian i again this has been great um always an enjoyment chatting with you um so until next time thanks for the time Brianne.
0: no problem anytime like i said we're harder to shut up than to get us ah. to talk
1: <laughs> <laughs> well enjoy the rest of your day and thanks again
0: you too
1: Thanks for listening to the Growing Point podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.